0: the bad boy the blonde bond the stoic sleuth with the steely blues daniel craig may be the newest addition to the bond name but in terms of making his mark on the franchise he's certainly no specter his films have boldly reinterpreted the origins of 007 and modernized the story for a new generation I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazendee, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and where he's going next. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. ¶¶ Welcome back again to Building a Better Bond, listeners, and welcome to present day. Our conversation has spanned the decades, stretching back all the way to before, the countercultural revolution in America pre-60s. And now, 50 and some years later, we are today, 2017, the current bond climate george Lazenby joins me again and thank you for doing so george
1: rupert thanks for having me back i'm so excited to record with you the seventh and final episode of building a better bond
0: that is incorrect george of course we have one more after this fucking
1: with me we have to do one more this george if you'll hold on i'm perusing my contract right now all right you know what i spilled a little bit of ranch dressing on the eight and it looked like a seven hmm all right, well, I'll rearrange some stuff and I guess we can do do one more, you know. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to phone it in quite a bit because I thought this was the last one, but we can do eight. Well,
0: George, thankfully for the listening public, even you at Quarter Strength is still among the finest co-hosts. Quarter
1: Strength is, you know, ten men for me.
0: Exact enumerations aside, listeners, George has suggested something interesting and true. This is the final iteration of our retrospective on the actors who have played James Bond and how they've done it. Next week, we look to the future. We look to the legacy of the franchise and investigate who will be the next James Bond. But we mustn't get ahead of ourselves because the franchise claims a current steward and one who, though unconventional, has been lauded for his work in the role. We speak, of course... Of Daniel Craig, the blonde Bond.
1: Ah, so you do know his name. Good. When you said Stuart, I, I misheard you. I thought that you thought his name was Stuart, and I was going to correct you. Of course
0: not. George, now, I know you're excited about this episode in particular, despite what maybe earlier, a few moments ago, you might have led on to. Because for the first time in this series, you have a very strong ongoing personal relationship with this particular Bond.
1: Yes, Rupert, you know, as the creative director of the James Bond franchise, I do have to have a certain level of acquaintanceship with whoever is Bond, but Daniel and I, there's no other way to put it, you know, we're best friends. If you look at, for instance, the relationship that you and I have, Rupert, multiply that by about a million, and that's what Daniel Craig and I have.
0: I'm sure it wasn't intended, George, but that's a very bolstering thing for you to say well it's
1: a very important cinematic relationship you know on and off screen daniel and i uh, just have something else that most uh super buds don't have uh, I, I actually call him craigsby it's sort of like a combination of our two names craig and Lazenby. i came up with it one day and he thought it was pretty cool so that's what i call him in the tradition
0: of american paparazzi publications you have melded your names into one hearkening back to the Brangelinas of the mid-2000s
1: the Brangelinas the benefits of the world there's also Crigsby and I think it speaks for itself you know we're a dynamic duo and we were both bond we have so much in common I know that you talked to him a little bit researching for this episode and did he mention me did you tell him what I told you to say yes I of course uh obeyed the script you did the the was up from the the seven up commercial right I, did, he, I, did he get it did you tell him it was me I
0: I began the call as you instructed George by saying was up? Uh, and I I held it for the requisite three seconds and he said he was very polite he said excuse me I'm not certain you have the right number this is Daniel Craig and I said I apologize yes of course." Mr. Craig, this is Rupert Carmichael from the PBS. Uh, we had an appointment to talk by phone. Uh, that,
1: that's classic Daniel, you know, acting like he didn't know that it was our inside joke. You know, that's that's classic Daniel. You know, don't, don't feel bad about it, Rupert, because that's just a thing we do. You know, he might act like he has no idea who I am, but, I mean, that's just a thing. Don't, I don't want you to feel left out, is what I'm saying. But you are. I was
0: happy simply to witness, even once removed, the bonds of friendship through the Bonds of James Bond. And it leads me to an observation that I hope is not too bold to make, George. That is, of all the Bonds, I believe, and I think the viewing public believes, Daniel Craig to be the most lazenbaic.
1: Well, I think the numbers speak for themselves, Rupert. Of course, the number 007, we, we share that Monica, But also the fact that Skyfall is the highest-ranking Bond film of all time. Now, is that because of Daniel Craig, or is it because of the combination of George Lazenby, creative director, and Daniel Craig, Bond actor? You tell me.
0: Well, I think no one need be told that this power coupling of creative work is something that has revitalized the Bond franchise. In the stale exactitude of Brosnan's portrayal, perhaps faithful as it was, The year 2005 brought with it a desire in media for the, and I quote, gritty reboot. It was time for Bond to get his, no man better suited than Daniel Craig, but George, we will get into all of that, because first we must address the white elephant in the room. There was a great deal of pushback initially when Daniel Craig was selected for his role in the role, because was the first blonde Bond.
1: You know, what I have to say to that is when the right person comes around, you can't look at their hair color. You know, and I think that we're too quick to judge. And when I discovered Daniel, I knew that it was going to be a problem. You know, it's the first thing you notice. He has blonde hair and blue eyes. And when you think James Bond, you think George Lazenby, a.k.a. tall, dark, and handsome. But I think with the new generation, people expect something more. And people expect that the caliber of James Bond will constantly achieve higher and higher echelons and so with my support i was able to talk harry zaltzman and albert brockley into welcoming daniel craig into the franchise originally in the first meeting introducing daniel craig i had a a mold of my own face made and a wig and i put it over daniel's face and so they fell in love with him and then i had to break the news that in fact he was blonde haired and blue eyed but by that point they loved him so much they trusted me that it was a non-issue
0: and as a addendum to that story as requested i asked daniel if he still has the silicone mask and polyester wig of your face he replied oh heavens no i donated that to some sicko private collection long ago tax write-offs and all
1: classic crigsby i know for a fact he has that mask on a bust in his personal library, so he can look at me all the time. At least that's what he said. I haven't been to his house. He said that he just wanted to uh, rearrange some things before he started having guest server, you know, that sort of thing. Of course, as you do. Now, we've spoken about perhaps the most marked trait of Daniel
0: Craig's bond, but it does not factor, and perhaps rightly so, into the George Lazenby rubric. In the George Lazenby rubric, It does not matter the color of your eyes, your hair, nor your skin. It matters what you wear on them. We talk first of Daniel Craig's unconventional
1: tuxedo. So, Rupert, as I said, I quelled any nervousness about a blonde bond. However, that was the first thing to make headlines, of course. People were really interested in this, and it was because of the fact that other people... the set and around the set were fine with the blonde bond it posed so many problems for the tuxedo originally people were thinking that because of daniel's fair skin and fair hair color and eye color it would contrast too much with a black and white tuxedo that the camera would not be able to pick it up so they wanted to have a golden uh, blonde colored tuxedo so it would be more homogenous
0: you can still see that prop tuxedo on display in the lancaster museum of bonds but Tell us why this sterling offering was eventually turned aside.
1: Well, when you're undercover as James Bond, you wouldn't know anything about this. It's more, more something that, you know, Daniel and I would, would bond over. You have to blend into the crowd. If you're, if you're wearing a bright, golden-colored tuxedo, you're not going to blend in. You're going to stick out like a soft thumb. And so the compromise that I thought of, was we're making a dark and a gritty reboot of Bond, right? So why not make sure Daniel is always covered in dirt and sweat and has bloodstains all over his clothing? And that would sort of even out the brightness of the tuxedo with the grittiness that we were trying to achieve, quite literally. It was a move
0: that some in the industry have called genius, a masterstroke which guided...
1: More than some in the industry. I think everyone in the industry.
0: Humbly counting myself among the ranks, I would agree, George. It guided the trajectory of the rest of the franchise and bore into life a series, now for working on five Bond films, which had a bent toward action and was not shy of showing physicality on screen. These demands demanded a more flexible tux than ever implemented before. These were not the surgical deranged killings of a Dalton, nor were they the pristine avoidances of a Brosnan. These were rough and tumble
1: scenes. They were very rough. They were very tumbling. We had several tumblers employed to show Daniel how to tumble and how to get that dirt all around him. We employed, I'm very proud of this, that we employed several Uh, crab fishermen from the wharfs around London uh, who were very dirty themselves and they would be asked in between takes to spot treat for dirt. By which I mean put more dirt on the different parts of the suit where dirt had come off. So I, I think that everyone really worked together to achieve this grittiness. The
0: grittiness being only one part of the equation. You as a team working with the wardrobe department had to engineer material that would not only stain more easily but would also strategically flex, allowing Daniel Craig to brawl in it.
1: That's true. Originally, we thought, well, it's supposed to be dark and gritty. Why not make the tuxedo itself out of sandpaper? But that posed to be too crinkly. Uh, When he would move around, the audio engineers would have to take off their headphones because it was so loud in their ears. And so we had to move to a higher grit sandpaper to make it a little more flexible, a little smoother, and... What we ended up doing was, if you'll notice in a lot of James Bond posters, Rupert, for all of Daniel Craig's movies, he's lying down. And this was a great way to emulate this, this laid-back feel that we were trying to achieve, uh, but also he'd be lying around in dirt. It was a great way to re-dirtify himself in between takes.
0: Some on set have called Craig the human chinchilla in that his constant dust baths became almost habitual even outside of the tuxedo.
1: We did a survey for millennials because it's, you know, we're trying to reboot this for the next generation. And we would ask them if they preferred their bond standing, sitting, or lying down. And Rupert, lying down won every single time. So that's why every poster, you know, he's he's lying down, he's laid back, he's cool, he's ready for a new generation.
0: And a new generation was exactly what you and he promised the world when Casino Royale re-debuted to the world this was not the first time of course that we saw casino royale portrayed but perhaps it was the first time it was portrayed faithfully
1: oh that's so true you know if you think and we've touched on this before and in this series in episode one which now i i remember is one eighth of the way through and not one seventh as i originally agreed to and thought but in episode one we talked about how david niven was james bond in casino royale and you you think of david niven as james bond you know a pompous dandy with a little pencil mustache and a purple tuxedo and then you think of daniel craig it's night and day it's completely different it's it's james bond it's new it's fresh it's exciting it's laid back because he's lying down as i said in every poster it's all that and so much more
0: daniel craig perhaps signatured by his undone bow tie his soiled outer coat and his destroyed top button dabbed lightly with his own blood.
1: The one thing I would say that posed a problem was that he would get so dirty on set that a lot of actors couldn't be around him, and it was almost a CGI nightmare to get rid of all the flies buzzing around him at the end of the day. He was like Pigpen, almost, in, in Charlie Brown. You know that character? I know both the character and the comparison. George, we haven't broached the subject until now, but you
0: wrote an article for the Smithsonian Magazine in 2015 comparing each of the Bond's. To a Peanuts character.
1: Yes, yes, of course.
0: Now, Pigpen, Craig, a natural pairing, but perhaps you could defend some of your more avant-garde
1: choices? Yes, well, I was obviously Charlie Brown you know, and Snoopy, because uh, I'm in the lead. I would say a lot of people gave me flack, but I completely stand behind it, is that Roger Moore was the the parents who just talk in turbo voices because he was obviously the worst one.
0: I think that was one of the most popular choices, even though it's not a specific character in and of itself.
1: Timothy Dalton, of course, being the nihilist he was, was uh, the Woodstock, the little bird. I'm intrigued
0: by Pierce Brosnan as Schroeder.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's a great comparison, because, you know, he's Pierce Brosnan, he's someone who's at the party. He's going to get the, the people dancing sideways as they do at parties, but he's not really the, the main focus.
0: And most bravely... Connery, in your investigation here, is Lucy, a philosopher and a bully, confident to a fault, but instrumental to the success of the comic strip and by proxy the Bond franchise.
1: I love the comparison I made. The only flaw, I think, was that Lucy, of course, is known for pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. And I don't want people to think that Sean Connery arguably made that football, set that football there. But when I went to kick it, it was a field goal, you know. It, it was a game-winning field goal. So that's the only difference—a
0: field goal that ended in a celebration that was on Her Majesty's Secret Service that deserved a toast. And a toast is where we find ourselves here and now. The drinks that Daniel Craig consumes much more classic than the martinis we've discussed in the past. George, was it a conscious decision to return to form? to attempt to purify in the waters of Ian Fleming's original
1: cocktail. Oh, of course, we talked a lot about pendulum swinging, going from one extreme to the other, and I think the teenies in Craigsby's movies were a complete reaction to the very refined, upscale martinis of Pierce Brosnan's era. Mm. In particular, Craigsby and I are, are bros. We, we, we love hanging out. We loved hanging out on set Uh, with everyone, and all we wanted to do all day was uh, just drink some Keystone Light and Nettie Ice. And we thought, wouldn't it be great for a new generation to bring these beverages into the James Bond franchise? And that's exactly what we did.
0: Listeners, what you might mistake as Belvedere or Grey Goose was actually, through the magic of CGI, gallons upon gallons of fosters.
1: You know, using my connections in Australia, of course... Foster's is Australian for beer. I was able to make Foster's the martini of beers. We all know Miller High Life is the champagne of beers, but Foster is the true martini of beers. And I think that product placement and connection helps solidify my and Craigsby's vision for a very down-to-earth, laid-back bond that millennials could appreciate too. I think that's why you have so many scenes in Quantum of Solace where he takes the martini glass and slams it on his forehead when he's done drinking the martini.
0: It also must be said that in this new generation, a new type of tactic was employed. Not quite as shameless as the product placement rampant in Brosnan's films, but you have region appropriated the drink that Craig drinks for every potential audience. For instance... In the United States, it is Pabst Blue Ribbon that is in the glasses. While Newcastle fills his glass in the UK, be it Molson in Canada, Tiger in China, everywhere you look across the globe, a different low-brow millennial-friendly beer graces the glass of Craig.
1: We wanted... James Bond, of course, he's an international man of mystery, so why not make his drink international as well? So if you're in Mexico and you see James Bond slamming a Tecate, of course you're going to relate to him more. And this led to us, unfortunately, it was, it was a vetoed, but we really wanted to resurrect Suds McKenzie and have James Bond have a, a canine sidekick.
0: Millennials are a fickle creature, sometimes latching on to nostalgia. With reckless abandon, other times casting it out. Such was the fate of Suds McKenzie, who, though dapper in his tiny tux of bow tie, bombed in initial screenings of Casino Royale.
1: Yeah, that's true. People just don't want to see a dog hitting on chicks at a bar with Daniel Craig. I, unfortunately, a lot of stake in this invested a lot of money in this and so suds mckenzie now receives a co-creative director credit on all james bonds moving forward it was the least we could do for him
0: a fine compromise and one that speaks to the collaborative nature of these films i think perhaps i i hope not to speak too much but in the past it has been a power struggle either to control a creative element as in timothy dalton or to wrest compromise from the clutches of power, like Brosnan. Here, it is a time of collaboration. It is a time of globalism. And the new Bond certainly depicts as much Daniel Craig, famously easy to work with.
1: But he was so easy to work with because, you know, I could liken it to working with your best friend, but I don't have to because we are best friends. You know, we see eye to eye on everything. Uh, We had so many great ideas for the James Bond Franchise, So many of which are still in the works. For instance, you know, we wanted originally for Casino Royale to be like Memento and to have every single Bond film play in reverse. You know, that was just one thing that we thought of when we were drinking Fosters on set. And that's what everyone loved about us. We were just kind of like two dudes hanging out. Let's
0: cheers to this segment with one of our favorite excursions here on Building a Better Bond. A interview with someone close to the set this, a boom mic operator who overheard one of these famous and now storied brainstorms. This comes from a man named Gerald St. Germain, and he recalls the scene sharing Foster's on set. I read, Daniel Craig just kept nodding, saying, Sure, sure, I see where you're going. Well, Mr. Lazenby would say things like, Just like in Air Bud, There's no rules about a dog not being James Bond. And Craig would say, right, right. And and Lazenby would then say something like, What if, instead of a dog, James Bond took place on an airplane, like in Con Air? That movie was the fucking balls. Craig then, sipping his Foster says, yeah, mate, sure, sure.
1: I think that really encapsulates our relationship. You know, Gerald hit it spot on. We're, we're kind of like a Jay and Silent Bob type. Mm. You know, Craigsby is there and supportive, and I'm I'm sort of the idea man. I, I gesticulate a, a, a bit more. I come up with these ideas, and then he helps refine them. You know, he, he may seem aloof to other people, but that's just what our relationship is. And that's how we figured out just hanging out, so many of the different pranks that we'd pull around set, and you know, we'd we'd stick Albert Brockley's hand in water when he was napping, or we'd rearrange his entire office and nail everything to the ceiling. Or his office was upstairs on, in the Eon Production Studios, and one time we put a cow up there, you know. And, and that's just the types of things that we do. Mo- mostly, I would do them, and then I would tell him about them afterwards. But it was like we were doing them together, you know.
0: And it was like the world was witnessing this togetherness happening in real time on screen. Daniel Craig's Bond was the first made in the era of social media. Emergent technologies in our own world reflecting those in the films. We'll talk more about that after the break. Don't go anywhere. More Building a Better Bond after these messages. Hello listeners, this is Rupert Carmichael from Building a Better Bond, here to talk to you about something else you can put your listening skills toward. George and I are great appreciators of the musical art form. It is arguably responsible for making James Bond memorable. A melodious mnemonic of espionage and excitement. Music sets a mood, instills emotion, enacts anticipation. So what then makes music? Beatles legend Paul McCartney. And Sugar Ray's Mark McGrath set out to dive into exactly that. A decades-long passion project of the two best friends, Paul and Mark's Sonic Experience Journey Tour is a new podcast from the BBC and the PBS investigating the note that started it all, the A-Note. Besides being used across a few scores, not much is known about this primitive tone. The two artistic icons slash super buds will interview a wide range of guests, from musical newcomers to old-timers who harken back the first time they heard the wondrous chime of A. You don't have to be a rock star to tap your foot and your mind along with this amazing story. The experience begins this fall, so subscribe now at bbc.com slash Tour slash podcast slash listen.
1: Bond girls. Aside from 007, they're the real reason to feast your eyes on any part of the franchise. From Ursula Andress to Gemma Arterton and every babe in between, these beautifully buxom femme fatales make Bond look better than any tux ever could. As a special offer for listeners of Building a Better Bond, I scoured Eon Productions' archives for nude photos of any Bond girl I could find, and unfortunately, I came up empty-handed. And when I reached out and suggested a boudoir photo shoot of the surviving leading ladies, I got slapped more than a wallaby in a koala tree. So PBS paid for me to take a figure drawing class, and with that practice, I was able to create a series of nude Bond girl drawings available for purchase. Masterfully rendered by me and gorgeous Crayola marker, you'll get to see every Bond girl in their birthday suit. From their large circular boobs to their long stick legs. Purchase singles or the whole collection at bbc.com slash nudies for sale. And that's with the number four. Now, if you can even focus after that, let's get back to the show.
0: Listeners, welcome back. And if you're listening, maybe it's on a mobile device, maybe it's on a laptop computer. Why don't you go ahead and tweet or Instagram or maybe even tag us on SoundCloud at the PBS and at the the BBC. We'd love to hear what you think about building a better bond and about the bond franchise in general. Because, George, you must be acutely aware that turning at the dawn of the new millennium was a specter of our own, the specter of social media, a promise of constant connectivity and a way to share opinions about media
1: like never before. Rupert, we've already talked about how we did so much market research with millennials to figure out what position they liked James Bond in sitting, standing or lying down. We also did a lot of research with millennials about the apps they use and the technology they use. And I think the producers, rightly so, wanted Craigsby and I to think of other ways to appeal to millennials. And the no-brainer here was all the gadgetry and James Bond. We had a whole new universe to explore. And this is what we did when, you know, we were in between polling pranks and thinking of ideas. Craigsby and I would hang out and come up with different App ideas for James Bond. We played a little game. Do you want to play the game with me, Rupert? It
0: would be an honor and a privilege,
1: George. So here's our game, and we would we would alternate. So I would name an everyday object, and then he would say the name of the app that that object would produce, and how it could be used as a James Bond gadget. Do, do you want to try playing? Yes, I would love to. Okay, so he give give me uh, just an everyday object. I'll, I'll show you how it works. A uh, lamp. Okay, I'm I'm gonna act like you said gun. And so the, the name of the app for, for the everyday object, a gun, would be called Sniper without an E. And James Bond would use it to remotely pick off villains with his sniper rifle. He wouldn't even have to be there. It would just be an app. So you, do you see how this works for a bit?
0: I'm beginning to understand. Could we perhaps do another round?
1: Sure. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you one this time. Let's say a, a turkey baster.
0: As an admitted amateur, I'd have to say the app would be called Baster. That's with no E. B-A-S-T-R and James Bond would use it to remotely based things?
1: Yeah, I could see that. You know, that's you know, it's not the best. I think Craigsby and I would come up with a lot of other funny things and great things to do. But yeah, yeah give, give me another one. Give me another everyday object. I'll dazzle you. Um, a comb. Okay, I'm going to pretend like you said wristwatch. Um, it would be called timer without an E and James Bond would use it to set off different bombs if he was setting a trap for someone. It's uncanny
0: how universal the application of this idea is and how universal the applications that you came up with became. Many of these think tank products became real life apps. And listeners, you can download Sniper today. It does not kill your fellow man at a distance. Instead, it helps you locate eBay auctions about to expire. And automatically bids one cent
1: more. Yeah, so these were the kinds of amazing contributions that Craigsby and I had over a couple beers on set, just shooting the shit, coming up with awesome ideas. But what we originally intended would, you know, resurrect the James Bond franchise to a new audience through more market research, Rupert. We realized that millennials don't necessarily want James Bond to be on his farm all the time because Once we had all these apps, there were so many deleted scenes where Daniel Craig would just be sitting in the Bond car on his phone for 15 minutes at a time. And then maybe things would be happening in the background, but nothing exciting would happen. And so we had to convince the producers that although apps are a great addition, and social media is a great addition to the James Bond franchise, what millennials really wanted was to strip things back. So what we had to do was we brought in Taj Murray. We just thought, you know, who's the smartest guy we know? Taj Murray came in to explain to the producers, that millennials weren't necessarily looking for more apps. They wanted something that was more authentic, more stripped back.
0: This, of course, being one of the many reasons that Craig drinks his Fosters in a mason jar instead of a martini glass in the films. But it was a phenomenon that was represented in many nuanced ways on set.
1: Yeah, so we wanted to really strip back the gadgetry. You know, If we're thinking of James Bond as an origin story in this new millennium, the first thing Was that we had to have Q, the guy who was coming up with all the gadgets, not be old as shit as he always was. So we wanted to have a younger, cool guy, more of a hipster guy play Q. And hipster he was.
0: The actor, now using the franchise to launch into a relatively respectable career, was a simple barista when you first encountered him.
1: Isn't that the case, George? Yes, so and I went out to Starbucks, and what we would do would we'd tell people that we would go out and do a coffee run, and then we would pour uh, different whiskeys and stuff into different people's coffee and just watch their reactions. It was hilarious. I'm, I'm sure when you talked to Daniel on the phone, he told you about that, right?
0: Uh, I brought up the pranks, uh, your incorrigible hijinks with Daniel, and he said, I wrote it down so I could quote it accurately. Oh, great. He said, I really wish George would stop saying we did those things. Many of them were bizarre and harmful. He would just tell me about them as he sat another Foster's in my hand. That's
1: classic. Crigsby, to a T. You know, he, he was right there next to me. Uh, so so we, we found the guy who played Cure. We, we loved him. I think, if I recall, Daniel, you know, put him in kind of a, a chokehold, put his arm around his head and said, all right, come on, you, you're part of the game now. You can play Cure. And when he was on set, this is when things got, I guess, a little out of hand. I saw this guy's nerdiness come to full fruition, his hipsterness. And I really wanted Daniel as James Bond to be picking on him and calling him a nerd way more than ended up in the film. You know, I wanted him to be sort of like an abusive bully. Uh, and, And they kept saying, you know, George, we can't do that. He's supposed to be James Bond's ally. And I just said, but yeah, but he's so you know gangly, wears glasses. What if you just pushed him around a little bit more?
0: What few scenes of Bond bullying Q that did make it to the final cut were swiftly executed in the later revisions. Once initial screening went live, millennials, believe it or not, did not enjoy watching themselves get bullied on screen by the man they
1: idolized. I thought this would be sort of an irreverent take. I'm very proud that the one scene that. Did make it through in Sky Falls when Q has his, his phone out and he's explaining to Bond uh, this, this Twitter based app that calls his Aston Martin over. And Daniel Craig reaches for the phone and chucks it across the lab. And I thought that was just classic. That was hilarious.
0: We have another excerpt. This is from Taj Mari, Technical Assistant Creative Director. On Casino Royale, it's about the scaling back of technology across the board in the film. He says, Millennials don't want bells and whistles. They want practical, pragmatic stuff. So we wanted to go away from the elaborate technology of the franchise. So like, take Pierce Brosnan, for instance. He'd be like stainless steel bolted to a table, and a laser beam would be trying to cut him in half or something. But with us, we're like... Let's take Daniel Craig. Let's put him in a basement. Let's take a bag of rocks and hit him in the nuts with it. That's millennial. That's fresh. Getting beat in the nuts. That's fresh.
1: You know, it's hard for me to read that excerpt because I agree with him so much. I brought in Tash Mary other second I saw him on Disney Channel. I-, I loved what his work, but when he talks, I just want to... You know, just hit him with a fret pedal or something. It's a very weird sensation, Rupert. A
0: weird sensation accurately describes the world's welcoming of Casino Royale as the new standard of bondhood across channels, be they entertainment TV, the movie theater box office, or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. The world welcomed Daniel Craig, and they said with a resounding voice, we want more. George Daniel Craig's own voice added to this conversation in an important way. We now talk the talk of Daniel Craig's Bond.
1: In order for a franchise that is so old to start appealing to people of the generation, you have to talk the way they do. There was a lot of humor that I picked up just from, you know, hanging out with millennials. Some research I did that I think really made it into the film in a great way. For instance, in Casino Royale, there's a great scene between Daniel and the villain Blofeld over the poker table. Blofeld asks, you know, where have I seen you before or something? You know, he's, he's trying to put the pieces together, and Daniel just makes a loud, bellowing fart noise.
0: What you, older listener, might see as a non-sequitur or abrasive, anti-immersive, The millennial viewer views with reverence, irreverence, the ability to not take oneself so seriously. It is what earned Daniel Craig the title of international everyman of mastery.
1: What I think Craigsby and I also achieved was the script rewrites. The original scripts for Casino Royale were just too dry, you know, they seemed of a different era. And so what we did was we figured, you know, we were two bros hanging out. Why don't we bring in some more of our bros to hang out and rewrite these scripts too? So, of course, we, we brought in Zach Efron to our group. Of course, with Zach Efron, you get Seth Rogen as well. Then here's where things, unfortunately, got out of hand. When you get Seth Rogen, of course, you get James Franco. And when James Franco gets in the mix, he starts wanting to direct things to act, to produce, and it gets a little out of hand.
0: Much like the Department of Natural Resources, which introduce wasps to kill aphids once James Franco gets on the set you must introduce other actors to keep James Franco in check
1: you have James Franco you have Davey Franco is sort of a package deal you get in there then you have to have a contractually obligated cameo by Michael Cera if James Franco is on the set Uh, and then before you know it you just have way too many bros around we're trying to make a movie here And there's so many people contributing ideas, which are great, but when they all start getting homogenized and start transforming Bond into something that it's not, then you really have to scale back. Just like technology, we brought so much in, then we had to scale it back. But I think the end result speaks for itself.
0: Once Michael Cera is involved, it is only sans through an hourglass before Justin Long finds himself on set. And then, before you know it, Judd Apatow is on the phone. Eventually, such a critical mass of bro-like creative... Opinion had been achieved that no actual work could be done on set. It was a cacophony, constant, of meta humor, cheap referential makes, and general jabroniness.
1: What ended up happening is that James Franco and Carr decided to not have Daniel memorize any lines. They wanted it to be improvised. They said that's it's a great way to work, and, and we tried it out, but. What we wanted to do was bring more emotion and, and grittiness to the James Bond character. And it just became this referential hodgepodge that nobody understood. And they said, okay, well, let's just drink more. And then the the lines will just come more naturally. And so what happened was in a drunken stupor one day, Daniel was just trying to keep up with all these guys. He broke into the recording booth when Adele was recording Skyfall and... He refused to leave the recording booth and said he could do it better and recorded the song on his own. And so that's why the backing vocals of Skyfall are are inaudible. You can't understand what he's saying.
0: Adele, consummate professional, willing to co-credit that track with Daniel. Now, this new creative system was unstable and unsustainable. Eventually, no work could be done, no scenes shot. You abandoned Studio 47 to a new location. The Bro Collective so consistently high and drunk, didn't even notice when Danny McBride stepped in as Daniel Craig. Filming, or so they thought, continued for months, though the actual production of Skyfall had moved far away to a different set altogether.
1: I've heard that Studio 47 is now James Franco's warehouse apartment. I've gone back there a couple times. Wouldn't you know it, they still think they are filming Skyfall.
0: Even though the film has been released for almost four Years. Now, listeners, that sense of retrospection can only be applied so much because, and it should be spoken about for a moment here Daniel Craig's role and reign as Bond has not yet come to close. We have more to look forward to. So, if you could speak to that, George, what's coming down the pipeline?
1: Rupert, we have so many ideas. Coming down the pipeline, Daniel Craig is signed on for one more James Bond film, and we are setting out to make it the best it could possibly be. Uh, I'm sure that when you talk to him on the phone, he said something about it, about how excited he was to work with me again. I unfortunately haven't really talked to him since we wrapped Spectre. He said that there was um, something wrong with his phone, and he had to change numbers or something.
0: Yes, when his assistant heard the reason for my call, she had us go through... A intermediary with a burner cell. So I'm not sure what the logistical reasons are. I
1: realize that Daniel Craig is probably a man who values his own privacy. Well, maybe you could give me that number, because I'd love to talk to Daniel about some ideas that I have. Uh, he after specifically
0: requested that I do not give you the number. I'm not certain the reason. I, If I had to guess, it is another one of your storied legendary hijinks. And capers. And I think, George, that is what defines this new era of Bond so well. It's that this grittiness, this dusky quality is underlain with the glow of collaboration. Do you have any last words to that effect?
1: Rupert, all this talk about Craigsby, this episode, it, it has me really thinking about friendship. You know, as I discussed, it's a it's a greater friendship than you and I could ever achieve. You know, what Daniel and I have is something completely different. And so this episode has me thinking about what true friendship really is. Actually, before Daniel was Bond, how I discovered him was we were in the same group of friends. Uh, It was me, him, Timothy Dalton, and a young Will Wheaton. And so one day we'd all heard a rumor that there was a dead body down in a river outside of London. We really wanted to check it out. And we made a plan to head out early the next morning. And it was amazing. Along our journey, Rupert, We learned so much about each other and ourselves. It was an experience that bonded us and made us kindred spirits because we were never the same after that fateful summer day. And afterward, unfortunately, we kind of went our separate ways. As time went on, we saw less and less of Will and Timothy. Pretty soon, there were just faces in the holes. It happens sometimes. Your friends come in and out of your life like busboys at a restaurant. I heard that Will Wheaton got married and is now a forklift operator.
0: I don't think that's true.
1: Timothy, after his stint as 007 tried to get into the army, but was deemed too insane. Last I'd heard, he'd spent some time in jail and was now doing odd jobs around London. Daniel thought he'd never get out of town, but I told him he could do anything he wanted. And eventually he did get out. He enrolled in the acting courses I told him about and went under star in such films as The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and, of course, Casino Royale, Skyfall, and others. And although we don't keep in touch much anymore, I can turn on one of his films and watch him stab somebody in the throat and it's like things had never changed. I never had any friends later in life like the ones I had when I was 58 years old. Jesus, Rupert, does anyone?
0: Does anyone, indeed. Listeners, thank you for taking this journey with us so far. We have but one stop left to make, and that stop is the future. James Bond, join us next week when we discuss who will carry the torch when Daniel Craig finally decides his role in The Sun is done. On behalf of the PBS and the BBC, I'm Rupert Carmichael. I'm George night. Good night. <laughs>